Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. This week I continue my chat with Robert Neald, the author of China's Foreign Places, the Foreign Presence in China in the Treaty Port Era, 1840-1943. Treaty ports were set up by foreign powers from the mid-19th century. Some didn't last long, others became huge economic cities, such as Shanghai. Britain, Germany, France, the United States and Russia were all keen to do trade with China and the Russians also wanted to build the Trans-Siberian Railway but over China's territory. The Russians wanted to, to build a railway which would help trade generally and the Russians convinced China it would be much more efficient for everybody if the railway went straight through Chinese territory in the uh, early, early 20th century, the 1900s. And then, of course, the Russians had their ulterior motive that the whole place became, the whole railway line became more or less a Russian colony because they had a treaty to lease the railway line and all the land on which it stands, plus any other land that might happen to be needed to facilitate the railway, which is, a, is an open book. And there was a huge amount of territory which the Russian railway company um, got for itself. Now, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, we're looking at a map of China here, um, and uh, it's uh, basically the Chinese border areas annexed by Russia in 1858 and 1860. There's a little blob down the bottom of this map of, of, of China, which is, is Hong Kong. Um, but actually, in terms of what Russia nicked, it was vast swathes. Yeah, Russia nicked about... Two million square kilometers. <laughs> China now measures about 10 million square kilometers. So that's almost 20% of the country that was taken by two treaties um, with, with Russia. Um, surprisingly little I've seen mentioned about that. Maybe, okay, I haven't looked at Chinese or Russian records, but it seems that that 10% of the country, well, yeah, you know, that happened, but the British taking Hong Kong, oh, no, no, that's, that's terrible. Uh, it seemed to be much more... Um, I don't know, it gave them much more problems, much more negative feeling uh, to think of, of people like Britain taking Hong Kong than, than Russia nicking 10% of the country. I've, I haven't been able to fathom that, really. Nanking, Nanjing, uh, has a very tragic history during this period, um, a very violent history. Um, was it also a successful treaty port, aside from that? Uh, as a treaty port, it wasn't. Um, most treaty ports were, were opened as a potential source of trade and mercantile activity. Nanking was always a special place because it had been the capital of China. Uh, in fact, Britain and France in 1858 uh, mapped out parts of Nanking to open as, as their own settlements. That didn't happen because things were just too, too uh, violent at the time. It's just up the Yangtze, uh, not far up the Yangtze from Shanghai. In fact, it's, it's quite close. It's quite on the eastern side of China. Um, but what I didn't realize when I was researching Nanking, everybody knows about the, the Japanese um, atrocities there and, and tragic they were. But I didn't know until I was digging into this that that tragic event was but the fifth similarly tragic event in less than 100 years. The first was the Taipings. The Taipings had um, Nanking as their capital. And when they saw the end coming, they made sure that everybody around them suffered and they destroyed everything, killed lots of people, left the city of Nanking in an absolute, uh, a, like a, a dump, a rubbish dump. There was a lot of slaughter of people there before they left. Next time was in the revolution uh, in 1911. Uh, Nanking held out against the revolutionary forces and there's a lot of suffering there and the incoming uh, victors 
made sure that the people who had been opposing them felt sorry about it. There was a lot of killing and shootings and that sort of thing. A couple of years later, there was a so-called second revolution uh, where Nanking uh, again held out against uh, the, the, the army outside and there was a lot of killing there. It seemed to be proving a point. Rather than just capturing the city, I'm going to capture the city and kill as many people as I can find just to prove that I'm really doing the right thing. It seemed to be the motive. So that's the third time. In the 1920s, when Chiang Kai-shek was supposedly running the country, um, there was, uh, I think in about 1927, there was um, some killings of foreign people in Nanking by reactionaries, revolutionaries, what have you. Chiang Kai-shek was supposed to be in charge, so the foreign consulates complained to him and said, look, this isn't good enough. And he, clever man, said, leave it to me. I know who's to, to blame. It's the communists. I'll sort them out. There was mass shootings. I've seen eyewitness reports of women running away in the street being shot in the back. It sounds very similar to what happened when the Japanese were there, but this was the Chinese. Chiang Kai-shek killed people who were communists, people who, who were suspected communists, people who knew a communist, people who could probably write the characters for communists. He killed them just to be sure. Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai were there as well. They managed to escape, fortunately, for the future history of the country. But Chiang Kai-shek did his stuff. Then he said, uh, would there be anything else? And, of course, the Western powers were horrified. They thought, no, 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 you, you've done enough. Thank you. That was the fourth time. And then the Japanese came. It was the fifth time. It's only the Japanese atrocities that are referred to these days. The other four are Chinese against Chinese, and they get a much lower profile. I don't know why. Now, a lot of the trade, particularly in, the, in those early decades, was done by junk, uh, you know, in terms of the, 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 mer the preferred merchant ship was often a junk um, on the Chinese side. But what actually persuaded them to, to move into steam? The, the Chinese then, and to some extent now, very traditional in their thinking. The junk was uh, the way they transported stuff around, as you say. But even the most traditional, die-hard merchant who wants to get his goods to his customer as quickly as possible, could see that the steamers were bigger, they were more efficient, they didn't depend on the wind, they could go anywhere they wanted, when they wanted. All those things added together for the Chinese to say, well, okay, maybe for some purposes steam is better than junk. The inland uh, waterways, it was still junk for a long time, but the coastal trade very quickly became steam. In fact, the Chinese uh, uh, became very big steamship operators themselves. You have a photo in your book of a, of a steamer actually battling its way up the Yangtze River. Yeah, that's it, it's a great photograph. Um, it was trying to get up to, to Chongqing, um, which is now perfectly possible by, by, by boat, by, by powered ship. But Chongqing was opened as a treaty port, um, but on condition that steamers could actually get there. Um, the Chinese thought this was a bit of a victory to delay things. The foreigners thought, well, why put a condition? It's either open or it isn't. So there was a race to actually get a, a steamship up the river to Chongqing. And it was incredibly difficult because the steamers were small, not very powerful, and the river current was strong. It was either strong or it wasn't there at all because uh, in the floods there's a lot of water but it's moving fast. And the other time of the year when it's quite dry, there's only a little water and uh, boats had to stick to the very middle of the river, otherwise they couldn't get past the obstructions. So this picture, I think, is, speaks volumes. This little chap is struggling away. You can see the current going against the ship. Um, he made it, of course, but it was, it was very, very difficult. And a lot of people at the time said, that's nah, not possible, you can't do it. And if there's one thing that, that um, encourages 
a pioneer like these people is to be told it's not possible. We've talked about how some of these places got started. Some, some faltered right at the beginning and, and fail, some would fail later on. The ones that really took off... Um, you know, we're, we're saying that these places were from the 1840s, some of them, right through to 1943. So can you tell me about uh, some of the larger tra- treaty ports that really w- were turning into, you know, in, that saw industrialization and were more of a success story? Yes, of course. Uh, Shanghai is the biggest one. I think uh, most, or many people are very familiar with Shanghai and the story there. So let's look at Tianjin. Tianjin or Tianjin was uh, basically the port for, for the capital, for Peking. It's um, very close to Peking, up in the, in the northeast. Um, it was uh, Tianjin, is a heavenly ford, the, the ford over the river on the way to see the Prince of Heaven, which is how, how it gets its name. And it was traditionally the closest that foreigners could get to Peking. So it became quite an important place in itself. And it was opened as a treaty port in 1860, And because of its closeness to Peking, and Peking wasn't a very easy place for people to be in despite being allowed to be there by treaty, um, Tianjin grew, and it grew like Topsy, and there ended up being uh, concessions for the British, the French, the Germans, the Japanese, the Russians, the Austrians, the Italians, and even the Belgians had their own... It's, you know, it's a roundabout. People jumping on. The Italians, yeah, you got, you got a concession. We want one too. And so they had one. Everybody had one. It was almost... Can you, can you do a Belgian accent? <laughs> Belgian is like Hercule Poirot. <laughs> I'm not French. I'm Belgian. So the Belgians also said that we want something there too. And uh, please don't think we are French. <laughs> um, Tianjin, Tianjin, Tianjin was huge and it got huger um, after the Sino-Japanese war the treaty of Shimonoseki in 1895 specifically allowed foreigners to manufacture in China before then it was a bit iffy basically probably not but there's nothing very clear the Japanese sorted all that out and said very clearly foreigners can manufacture in China from that point on Tianjin and the big places Shanghai grew phenomenally because um, factory manufacturing was allowed. A lot of it initially was textiles. There's a lot of cotton grown in China, so cotton factories grew. But other um, heavy industry uh, factories grew as well. Tianjin became huge. Going there now, there's a lot of reminders of this period in terms of the buildings there. And they're not all... Uh, in fact, there's very few really ancient ones in treaty port terms, but there's a lot from the 20s and 30s. Beautiful bank buildings, for instance. There's uh, a road in Tianjin, uh, Victoria Road, which is where all the banks were. And there's a whole line of wonderful former bank headquarters, not quite as big as the ones in Shanghai, but scaled down only by a little bit. But unfortunately, they're all now part of the Bank of China, bless them, uh, who have uh, agreed and determined to look after them. So you go down this road, oh, there's Bank of China, oh, Bank of China, oh, there's a Bank of China, Bank of China, there's Bank of China. They've got branches, uh, about ten branches, that's an exaggeration, but they've got lots of branches all in this tiny space, but they're wonderful buildings from that era, the 20s and 30s. It's lovely to know that some of these uh, buildings are being preserved and uh, just how developed uh, some of these treaties uh, ports became. Um, why did it all stop in 1943? The whole system of treaty ports came to an end uh, with what's called the Chongqing Agreement in 1943. This is the middle of the Second World War, or the, or the Pacific War. It was more commonly referred to out here. 
Uh, the Japanese were pushing in from the east, and they got up the Yangtze, they got as far as Hankow, and then they got further up. The Chinese government kept leapfrogging and uh, retreating from the advancing Japanese, and they ended up with Chongqing as the capital of China. And um, it, was, it was agreed between the Allies and China to sort of give the Chinese some encouragement, if you like. That sounds very patronizing, but they're saying, okay, we will stop all extraterritorial rights in the former treaty port system. And that treaty was signed in 1943 because China was, was on its knees. The Allies were helping, their, doing their very best to defeat the Japanese and not doing very well in many cases. So these two bodies were f fighting with each other rather than against each other. To have this treaty port system as a sort of thorn in the side didn't seem fair, didn't seem right. But it was a good opp opportunity to say, OK, let's just stop the whole thing. So that was 1943. The treaty port system was over in 1943, but take it forward and you're getting into special economic zones. Are there any comparisons to be made? There are, and it, it is remarkable that uh, these special economic zones were sort of created by China as a, wow, a great way of, of doing business. <laughs> and people like me think, hmm, that sounds familiar. I've seen it a little bit before. Um, they, they grew up just over the border from Hong Kong. There was Shenzhen was one. And many of the former centers of foreign trading became special economic zones. And what happened in, a, in an SEZ? Well, there was a defined border, like there were for, for the concessions uh, in the treaty ports. There were special tax breaks, like there were before. There were special privileges. Manufacturers concentrated there because it was more efficient, it was more user-friendly, um, which had sort of happened before. So I, the, the SEZs were, were very welcome at the time, and they, they helped to springboard China's industrial resurgence in the late 20th and early 21st century. But yeah, I see that as a sort of ghost of the treaty port system, um, although that's not politically correct. There's nothing to do with foreign sort of aggression and colonialism. But it was a practical matter, which I believe a lot of the treaty ports themselves were. It was a practical way of, hey, let's, how can we get the business done here? My thanks to Robert Neald, the author of China's Foreign Places, the Foreign Presence in China in the Treaty Port Era, 1840 to 1943. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.